In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Did you hey. hit your microphone or did I hit mine? I think you hit, you definitely hit yours. <laughs> All right. Well, we're off to a great start then. I mean, we're already off to a great start because I don't I don't know if there was a warning put on last week's episode. There was. Uh, yeah, okay. So, you know, if you're listening, you might be thinking last week's episode was a little different. Mhm. <laughs> they for some reason were reviewing a movie instead of talking about Law and Order. What? Which, by the way, if you subscribe to our Patreon, if you like that kind of thing, there's that and much, much more. So, yes. So, we uh, if you liked it, yeah, go go check it out now. Yeah, check out our website, right ripped, rippedheadlinespod.com. You could find a link to our Patreon and much more. Yes. Or patreon.com slash n and Matt. Hey. However, um, we started recording this episode last week just to rebrief you all. Mm-hmm. And uh, things were going great. We were having a good, really good old time. Good old time. <laughs> After we were about, I don't know, a little more than halfway through, uh, <laughs> we realized that there was a technical difficulty and one of our recordings was not recording properly. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are, uh, we lost the episode, the lost episode. The lost episode. I almost contemplated, because I know your recording was still fine and it was mine that failed, Mm -hmm. I almost thought about asking you to send me your recording file and me try to, like, respond Uh, uh, to the recording. Like, as though I was just me talking. Exactly, yes. That would have been, like, a fun game for you. (laughs) It would have been... I I was like, oh, I could do that. And then I was like, oh, that would be so hard. Like, what if I can't figure out what I said, like, three quarters of the way through trying to figure it all out? Exactly. Yeah, that would have been fun. (sighs) Yeah. So here we are. Here we are. We're going to go through it again. And uh, it's going to be great. It'll be so good. It's going to be great. So buckle up. Um, I... Still only have the same recommendation I had from last week, so I'll just do it again. Okay, great. Uh, we watched a documentary series, limited series, no, I don't know what you call it, docu-series. It's okay. like four episodes long on Netflix, I believe it's called I Killed My Father or I Just Killed My Father. Uh, yeah, I think it's I Just Killed My Father. There you go. Um, have you watched it since we last talked or no? I haven't, No. Yeah, I I think it's good. Again, it's well done. It's by the people who did um, what, uh, Abducted in Plain Sight, which was right. just Wild. the type of thing you watch wrenching your, your hands together the whole time and, yeah. like, chewing on your cheek. <laughs> it just makes you want to scream. Um, this one has a similar quality to it, but, you know, they you know the, the ending from the beginning and you're kind of just, like, reconstructing it and talking to... Those who were involved, survivors, victims, whatever you want to perceive everyone to be. Um, yeah, I feel like it's really good because it's the kind of thing where two people could sit on the couch next to each other watching it and at the end have totally different opinions. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know where I feel. Like, Davey and I definitely have similar opinions that are, like, just alter slightly. But yeah. I can totally see someone going completely on the other direction. So <laughs> the kind of thing that makes you wonder, you know, where do you draw the line between trauma 
childhood trauma and then you know actions later on in life well we're going to talk about that in one of our other episodes today Mm -hmm. um Mm. and uh Interesting. Yeah, the only piece of new thing that I have for you is, did you see the news that uh, both prosecutors and defense attorneys are calling for Adnan Syed's uh, conviction to be vacated and for a new trial to happen? Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be, I'm of the opinion that that would be amazing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he did it personally based on now my recollection recollection of uh you know serial and the other things i've watched you know probably like 5 or 6 years ago now at this point yeah um but i i always thought there were too many whether or not he actually did it i feel like there were too many extenuating circumstances to to uh give a like beyond reasonable doubt guilty sentence right um but now it seems like they might have another suspect so Interesting. Wow. And another sub- suspect outside of him and Jay, or did it? Did uh, yes, it say? I believe it's somebody entirely different. Wow. Okay. See, this is the thing. I've always thought he was not responsible. Yeah. From same thing, all of the retellings I've heard of it, and I've always felt that the biggest thing was his alibi witness, who just didn't come yeah. forward at first, and I just feel right. like she's so believable, credible. Um, yeah. Yeah. I it just. Just that alone, on top of so many other factors, made me think yep. that. Yep. But um, I didn't know if I necessarily thought... I think Jay is involved, personally, but I don't mm. know if I necessarily believe that he's fully responsible either. So I'm really curious to see where that would go, because I absolutely, if nothing else, regardless of Jay, I certainly do not think that he's responsible at all. How do you remember these things? Like, remember people's names and that there was this alibi witness? (laughs) I am the type of person who, and you know this about me from watching me watch things, I get very invested in whatever it is I'm watching in some way or another. You know, whether if it's something silly, I'm invested in the like production quality of how silly this is going to be or how preposterous or. Whatever it is. So because I'm so, like, laser-focused on things that I watch, I think I just retain some random things. But then there are other things. Like, you could ask me about cases that I've covered on this show that Uh I have covered and and were flabbergasted by. And I'll be like, wait, was that yours or mine? Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's so weird. True. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Well, speaking of covering cases, (laughs) shall we get into the episode? Let's do it. Yay. We are at Season 4, Episode 21 of Law & Order, the penultimate episode, as I love to say that word. (laughs) Yeah. There's an episode of Gilmore Girls where, uh, like, this group of guys who plan, like, outrageous stunts and pranks, uh, one of them is dumb, and they're talking about how they're doing this prank, and it's, like, the ultimate, like biggest thing they've ever done and somebody says bigger than the ultimate the penultimate and somebody's like that means the next to last like (laughs) anyway the episode begins it's called the doubles and we're in a very unrealistically set tennis match between two young women um who we we know it's not (laughs) go ahead 
the director, I'm pretty much sh- sure, just gave them the direction of just like jump around, swing your arms, and grunt. Like it's there's no tennis ball. I don't think they're on an actual tennis court. It's you very just small. get kind of like close ups of them going like, uh, barely. Yeah, and I think that was a <laughs> generous grunt. Because yes, I think was... it was closer to a realistic tennis grunt. Like, when I watch women's tennis, it sounds like I'm watching, like, Tekken or Mortal Kombat. Whereas <laughs> yes. here, it sounds like... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> and then just like that, it's a very rapid sequence of events. We have the, you know, half-hearted grunting, the pantomiming of tennis playing with no ball, yeah. The blonde player is Allison. She has lost the game to the brunette player, Corey. And this is how quick it happens. It's invisible ball is missed. Allison loses. Crowd claps very quickly. They clap and and complete. There's no announcement on the tennis court, quote-unquote tennis court. She walks immediately from shaking hands into a crowd of reporters that wasn't there a moment ago and gives an interview with no breath. Yeah, she is in no way indicating that she has had any physical exertion. None. Like, she just went and got salt from the other end of the table. Right. So she's being interviewed, and they say, oh, you know, you lost. How do you feel? And she says, I'm just sandbagging her for next week. (laughs) So we get that she's the sort of rough-and-tumble character. She's just saving it up. You know, she doesn't pronounce her g's everything has an an apostrophe at the end of it her um her quality of acting is a lot like the quality of acting in troll 2 by the way like she could easily (laughs) she could easily be the daughter from troll 2 oh i think that she's not manic enough (laughs) there's no uh mysterious dance routine uh scene (laughs) or uh exercise montage while she's chewing gum by the way (laughs) For anybody who's listening, if you've never seen the movie Troll 2, do yourself a favor, go watch it, but also subscribe to our Patreon to hear our review of Troll 2. Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta watch Troll 2, and then you gotta see a review, because honestly, it is... If this girl was performing at the level that the daughter in Troll 2 was performing at, yeah. it would be like every line of dialogue she was speaking was coming after she had been like insulted at the highest degree. Like yeah, <laughs> a, a wailing shout, a retaliatory shout. <laughs> yes. So she finishes up with the press, and then the opponent, Corey, comes off the court. She's more like well-to-do. She's more like prim and proper, reserved. Uh, she says that she's not super proud of her performance, but she'll get better. And any other questions, like, talk to my dad. So the dadager walks out. And uh, he is played by John Hurd, a.k.a. the dad from Home Alone, Mr. McAllister. Never would have recognized him. <laughs> there he is. I, I knew it. I thought it was the guy from Mad About You for a second, but... Paul Re- Paul Reiser, not yeah. Paul, Paul Reiser, yeah. I was about to say Paul Redd, and I was like, that's not right, but I knew it was Paul. Um, I loved Mad About You back in the day, by the way. I did, too. I haven't seen it probably since I was, like, 12, so I don't know how it holds up, but I remember it being funny. Me, too. I watched a lot of Mad About You and a lot of Murphy Brown for a preteen. Yeah, Murphy Brown. (laughs) Anyway, so the dad from Home Alone, a.k.a. Corey's dad, he is, you know, loving being on camera. He's the Kris Jenner of of this situation. He has taken over the press. 
when off camera we hear a shout. It's Corey. She's in the Racket Club locker room. So they rush in, and we see she's been attacked. And she says, it hurts. And they they focus on her wound, which, okay. Her wound appears to be a oval, an oval-shaped piece of lunch meat on her wrist area, like, with no blood. It's just kind of wet and a different color than her skin in an oval. And then she has a uh, an idea of blood around her nose. I thought it looked like... Uh, this whole scene was like they hired a four, four-year-old to do special <laughs> effects makeup for the episode because I couldn't tell what was supposed to be wrong for a while. Right. But it seemed like she had gotten into a fight with a red Crayola crayon uh, <laughs> and, and accidentally gotten a smudge under her nose. And I was like, is, is her nose supposed to be broken? Is her, but she was like holding her wrist. Like she had been bitten by a snake or something. It was really unclear what had happened, but we're, we're meant to understand it was a wrist injury. Yeah. Someone would have been just as effective if they wrote on her wrist with like a, just a big pen, something mm-hmm. like wound. Ouch. Yeah. Owie. (laughs) So she's injured on the wrist and uh, she's shaken up. The next scene, we're at the hospital and the doctor who has been treating Corey says to the detectives that his daughter's going to be heartbroken because she's been dying to see Corey play tennis, which, okay. So then we hear from off screen behind Briscoe and Logan what you think is going to be a major plot point. You hear who I'm going to lovingly refer to as Detective Bebop and Rocksteady. You hear them say, here comes the clown squad. (laughs) And we turn around and we pan over and there's two detectives, uh, you know, Bebop and Rocksteady. And they're like, you know, the obvious foils to Briscoe and Logan there. They've been called in for backup by Lieutenant Van Buren, so it's like they can't handle it without these guys to come in and clean up their mess. So uh, you're like, okay, we're going to have a whole episode about the rival squads and who's going to do it better, right? That's what we're meant to believe. Right. Um, I'm going to spoiler alert this. We see one of these men one more time. For about mm, 0.4 seconds. (laughs) Yes. I think they were trying it, and I bet you they just abandoned the narrative halfway through. Imagine these two actors were like, yes, we're finally going to get our break on Law and & Order, and then they're completely edited out of the episode. They, they were like, okay, Mom, Dad, tonight, tonight's the night. Everybody, gather around, turn on NBC. It's, <laughs> it's going to be like Darth Vader when he like sees the commercials and realizes they edited James Earl Jones instead of his voice. So, Oh my god. Yep. Anyway, the opening credits roll, and uh, I knew I had a minute or two. So I decided to try to, you know, come up with a new skill. Mm -hmm. So I looked into how to bookbind. I went to a paper press. I got a lot of pages ready. I went to a publishing house. I got some instructions on how to get a publisher for this book that I haven't written. I bound the book. I've got it right here. It's blank. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a very wise woman once said, unleash your inhibitions. (laughs) The rest is still unwritten. (laughs) 
Oh, Natasha Bedingfield. <laughs> I was obsessed with her when she first came out with that uh, I love you, I love you, I love you song. <laughs> oh, these I never words. liked that one. I always liked uh, Pocket Full of Sunshine. And she has, um, I think it's called Soulmate. Mm. Um, but it, it was used in an episode of the TV show Medium. Uh, oh, so that's how you... I loved songs that I learned from TV shows. Yeah, it's called Soulmate. It's a great song. Everybody go listen to it right now. Mm-hmm. And also, everybody go for a good time. Look up on, like, Spotify or something, either Dawson's Creek soundtrack <laughs> or the OC soundtrack. Oh, wow. Classics with hits you haven't heard or thought about in a long time that you're going to be, you're going to thank me. I, uh, did you ever listen to her brother's music, David Bedingfield? I mean, I know the the main two songs, you know. Gotta get through this or whatever it is. Yeah, gotta get through this, and if you're not the one. I don't know if I know that one. I I think I only know Gotta Get Through This. Oh, no, you know it. It's a ballad that was everywhere for, like, three years. What was it called? If You're Not the One. If you're not the one, then why da, 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 da. That's a really bad version of it but it's it's quite um it's one of those songs you know (laughs) one of those songs that you think when you hear it again you're gonna be like oh wow but you're like oh no this is still annoying Hmm. i don't recognize it from the lyrics i'll listen to it after we listen to it later because you're gonna know it okay so anyway we return to the show (laughs) logan is interviewing Corey, the survivor of the attacks coach um, she is wearing a green and pink fluorescent windbreaker combination. Uh, it's very reminiscent of my science folder from 1992. And she's got the Dorothy Hamill haircut, mm-hmm, helmet mm-hmm. hair. <laughs> Which means, you know, she's a, a big player in this episode because they always yes. give this haircut to a, uh, secondary character. <laughs> when they're casting, they're like, mm, sorry, wrong hair. <laughs> Exactly. She walked in and the producer's mouths dropped. They're like, don't yeah. even say a word. You you want to be a tennis coach? <laughs> she doesn't give them a lot of information when they're interviewing her. She says that she wanted bodyguards around the girls all the time because they're, you know, basically minor celebrities, but no one listens to her. Then they talk to a security guard who says that nobody but the players or the coaches came in or out of that locker room. So, you know. He doesn't know how this could have happened. Then we get our last scene with Lieutenant Bebop. He barges in and says, this guy's a waste of time. And says, I talked to the cop in the parking lot. And he saw a white guy with a black jacket sneaking the fire door. And he like kind of harumphs and walks away. So we think that Logan's going to go follow him and be like, hey, don't talk to me that way. But think again, because you'll never see these folks again. Nope. And I just thought to myself, wait, he just spoke to the cop in the parking lot who saw a white guy with a black jacket sneak in the fire door. And he just, A, did nothing, even though that's literally his job as the cop in the parking lot. Right. And and B, he saw it, did nothing about it, let whatever happened happen, found out that something had happened inside, and instead of coming forth with this information, he kind of just hung out and said, eh, someone asks me. Right. Anyway, so this is what they have now. They go talk to Allison because she was she was nearby. Um, I forgot to say, she was there when the attack happened. And when they walk out of the locker room past her, 
the only witness they have, this is her illuminating evidence and description of the suspect. She says, some guy. <laughs> That's it. So um, all they know is some guy, and now they have black jacket. Okay. They go, and they talk to Allison, who now says I really again, like how you said that. <laughs> they, some guy. That's kind of what she did. So Allison still says it's all a blur. She didn't know what had happened until it was already done. And she feels terrible because she knows Corey is like her and, you know, really loves the game. And now she can't play anymore. Detectives go back and talk to Corey, who is with her dadager. And she says that she doesn't know who did it. She asks, um, they ask her, do you have any enemies? You know, the usual and... She says, I don't think so, but she's kind of like cagely looking over at her dad, who goes and says, you're going to find out anyway. So he pulls out a letter and says this is from a stalker named Alan. And in the letter he says, if you won't play for me, I hope you never play again. As though she's a musician. As though he cares about the game of tennis. So she says... I've also gotten threatening calls before, once at a gym, so it could be the same guy. And they take this information with the letter back to Van Buren in the station. Olivet is now in the office, and from a three-sentence note that's very nondescript, she gives a full, comprehensive psychiatric evaluation on an unknown suspect that they know literally... Nothing about other than a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. How? How? But now they're on the lookout for a crazed fan. That's their that's their new angle. Right. Briscoe gets a tip that Alan tried to force his way into Corey's locker room to give her a gift recently. Very unclear of how they know it's the same Alan. Very unclear if the timeline of any of these things anyway... They are like jackpot. So they go talk to Alan at his place, even though he just did some sort of crime. Um, he says, I would, I, I love Corey. I'm a huge fan. I would never hurt her. Look. And he shows her his scrapbook, which <laughs> this is the most heinous, ugly scrapbook I've ever seen in my life. Yes. Talk about rudimentary. But he's a huge fan. He's never going to hurt her. Otherwise, how, how else is he going to finish his scrapbooking hobby? Right. They bring him into the station anyway. Uh, They question him with his lawyer present. He just continues to say how devoted he is to her. But he says he will submit to a lineup because he's got nothing to hide. And he would love for Corey to be able to see him in person, even though he won't be able to see her back. Just knowing she's on the other side of that glass will just do it for him. So they entertain him. However, much to the chagrin of the team... Neither Corey nor Allison are able to identify Alan or any of the other men. They just said none of these men are the right person. So, bummer. Briscoe doesn't want to let him go because he's got, quote, tennis balls between his ears. <laughs> but they're forced to release him. Then Detective Ask Jeeves comes in just when you think they have no more leads and says there's been another threat. So they're like, all right, well... Let's go follow up on this one. Plus, we had, you know, Mark. Uh, we had this guy, Alan, recently, so he couldn't have done it. 
So they go talk to Corey. She says that there was a note in the bottom of her bag that said, You got my warning. No more games. The next time you set foot on a court, you die. <laughs> so, so dramatic. <laughs> so dramatic. In the next scene, we find out that Alan was, of course, alibied for doing this. And they say, Okay, we're going to take Corey out casually and find out more information. So they take her to a place that serves ice cream. She orders ice cream, and they ask her, should you be eating that? <laughs> okay. So nasty. <laughs> Why? Why? So she says, I'm fine. Mind your business. And uh, they're having casual conversation about what could have happened and who could it have been. And I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Once they mention that it could have been, like, maybe her competition on the court, she gets very offended. She says, absolutely not. We're all friends. We're all sisters. And she storms out mildly storming out is putting it a little bit harsh yeah they go back to talk to the tennis coach who is uh shouting at the players like an auctioneer and she has no time to stop to talk to them because she's got things to do she does tip them off during this conversation that really is completely unnecessary um to know that the father is a little controlling the dadager so they're like, okay, maybe he has something to do with it. Wild goose chase, like many of the episodes. They go to visit the father at Corey Burke Enterprises, where he's the boss. She's not even Corey Burke like, Enterprises. Corey Burke Enterprises, which is like on the wall. The whole office is very like multi <laughs> multi level marketing scam. It's very strange. It's like we're meant to believe that someone who is about to take off is famous enough for a man to be able to quit his entire career, whatever it was, as a single father and launch successfully Corey Burke Enterprises, where they make branded merchandise that you can get on, like, redbubble.com. Right. It's just literally, like, water bottles that say KB. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He says at his office that, you know, it's just been he and Corey since her mom passed and he basically handles her whole life and manages her career. And he's got nothing bad to say except for that Allison Hall gal is a bad influence. Corey's a real player, while she's just a country club brat who plays tennis for a hobby. Burn. So they go to visit this Allison, this country club brat. And uh, she's had her apartment in a scene that I just love because... Uh, She's dressed like she's about to go to an interview for Coyote Ugly, and she is tossing her hair continuously through the whole scene. Yes, she's like spends most of this scene looking in the mirror while talking to Logan and Briscoe. And uh, when we recorded the first time, I said it's like she looked in the mirror and said, "How do I get that attacked by a bird look?" Uh, or how do I, uh, get that look that looks like I got in a fight with a weed whacker? Like, she is playing with her hair in such a way that is actively detracting from how kempt it looks. Like, it, it it's like, she wants that, like, like just got fucked hair, but it, <laughs> instead it's like, I just woke up hair. Yeah, she starts out the episode looking like Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, and, yes. uh, by the end of this scene... She's trying to get that tasseled look, but it looks like she just put her head in a food processor. Fully. (laughs) She is uh, being 
interviewed, aka accused, by the detectives of having something to do with this, which she takes a lot of umbrage with. She doesn't like the insinuation that she would do anything to hurt her friends. She says that she's always admired Corey for being such a good player. She's a hero of hers, and she would like to beat her because it would basically make her an instant tennis star. She doesn't mm-hmm. want to have her like out of the competition. So we get a uh, weird scene where Logan has a psychic vision, I guess, because he thinks, you know, thinking back to that description we got of the guy, he was wearing an, a, what sounds like a uniform for a bar called Gannon's. The description, a black jacket, period. <laughs> End of description. He has a that's so Raven moment, and he's like, I, I, or Charmed. <laughs> he has a yes. Phoebe from Charmed psychic vision of a man in a black jacket, and he's like, yeah. I know where to find him. Yeah, so they're like, all right, let's go to Gannon's. And even though they get to Gannon's, I thought maybe they meant uniform, like the uniform of the the casual goer to this place. I don't know. But no, when we get to Gannon's, neither the bartender or anyone in there is wearing a black jacket. Regardless, it's somehow the right place. The bartender says that she knows Allison by her drink, and they ask her who she hangs out with. She's like, oh, I don't know. That's not my job. And they're like, we'll get you fired because you're probably serving underage people. And every time they say this to any bartender, they seem to be doing so and know it. So she says, okay, fine. She's been hanging out with a bouncer named Mark who claims to be a black belt. Well, that's a lot. So, they somehow know exactly how to find this Mark. They bring him into the station in the next scene. He lawyers up immediately. Uh, They have his jacket being investigated, but DNA has already come back, or whatever version of it they have at this time. I think it's just blood. But uh, they they, they have no blood on his jacket. Mm -mm. So they're like, hmm, this is unlikely. However, I would like to say, based on the scene of the crime, what blood were they expecting to be on his jacket? Maybe, maybe they were looking for a piece of baloney. Maybe they should have had that expert. The Oscar yeah. Mayer expert should have been on the scene <laughs> because maybe they were expecting all the blood to be on him since none of it was on her. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they think she's like a gusher, and when she got wounded, it just sprayed all over him. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Anyway, uh, they decide to refrain from telling him about the blood not being on the jacket because they want him to feel guilty possibly and get what they want out of him. But they don't get anything out of him. There's this really annoying scene where they do like this one moody light bulb above the table while they're questioning him and Briscoe and Logan circle the the table with him and his lawyer like hyenas and the pride lands. And uh, it's it's nonsense, but he eventually caves and says, okay, fine, I'll tell you what you want to know. He says that Allison... Gave him $10,000 to attack Corey. So they're like, aha, we knew it. They go arrest Allison. They have to pull her out of a pool when they do it. And before they put the cuffs on her, the detectives say, game, set, match. (laughs) Good one. Before the trial, the DA's team squares off with Allison and her attorney. And they have that little meeting in the office with Stone her attorney thinks the whole thing is preposterous. She can't wait to win the case. They they have very little. And so no talk of a deal or anything like that. What Stone knows to be true and Kincaid is that she's kind of right. They don't have a lot. 
Um, all they have is this confession. And right afterwards, they get word that Mark's lawyer is saying that Mark is recanting the confession because he was not told about that damn jacket. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, taken under duress or false pretense or whatever. The judge pulls a little Uno game in her room about this in her chambers. She says, first, the confession is in because the reasons that the defense wants it out don't stand up. However, she throws a little reverse card down and says, just kidding. It's out anyway for a different reason. Right. Pointless, but really suspenseful. Kincaid and Stone interview Corey and her father. Uh, They disagree on how to move forward. Corey wants to put this all behind her. The dad is out for blood. So they go back to the tennis coach, who, again, is too busy to talk. This time she is, like, rapidly hitting tennis balls like a robot, like, on repeat. She cannot Mm -hmm. talk. She's, like, literally just hitting six tennis balls at a time and then stopping to breathe and talk in between. Right. She tells Kincaid. Corey was at the top of her game. This is going to ruin everything for her. It'll never be the same. Uh, She feels bad. They go talk to Corey, who feels more bad for Allison because of all the bad press she's getting. Kincaid says, listen, like, you don't understand. And she's like, no, you don't understand. My injury wasn't even that bad, and I wanted to quit tennis anyway, and my dad knew that. So Kincaid quickly turns into that, like, meme of the lady with the math. And starts putting everything together. And she's like, wait a second. If her dad knew she wanted to quit, he could have had something to do with this. Because retiring after an injury is like going out a hero. But quitting makes her like, you know, ruins her brands. Mm -hmm. So they bring in the dad. He is outraged at the accusation. He's like one of those thermometers that like his head is just getting red at a level from his chin to his head until it bursts. (laughs) He screams, she needs tennis <laughs> at the end. <laughs> and then he muses about when he used to be a tennis star, but he failed. And they're like, okay, we know exactly what we got going on here. Very Chris Jenner. Very, very, very. For some reason, they go talk to her doctor with no reason to. But he says, well, she's had a lot of injuries over the past, like, four years. And they're like, oh, serious? And he's like, little accidents, like a cut on the finger. But he's remembered these, like, miniature, minuscule accidents, like a cut on the finger over years, and that concerned him. Okay. Um, And then he says, I I referred her to a therapist. So they go talk to the therapist. And he says, this is the story of a girl named Lucky. (laughs) (laughs) He says that uh, Corey was, you know, becoming a star, but it takes a toll on you, and she seemed like she had it all, but the stress, the, the you know, the worry, and the da da She even kept a diary. Uh, they're like, all right, we got to get our hands on that diary. Mm-hmm. So we're in a scene with her lawyer, Corey, her dad, and the DA's office fighting for this diary. They're fighting to keep it private because it's like a diary. Ultimately, the diary is turned over, and it reveals... Corey's been sad and depressed and very jealous of Allison's freedom. They are friends. And uh, she reveals in the diary that she had met Mark previously. So they have that Mm -hmm. connection. And the next page has an entry where she writes, Mark will take care of it. Dad will never know. They're like, this is just the twist we need. 
In another twist, however, they're talking to Mark now, who they think is there, definitely the guy, and he says, okay, you're partly right, but it's not true. So it's another Uno reversal moment. We got a reverse, now another reverse. And he says, it was actually Allison who hired me, not Corey. So you're wrong. So they're like, okay, we have it. But then, draw four. We find out. <laughs> Corey and her dad are back at the station, and Corey confesses. She actually was the mastermind behind it, but she had Allison do it for her. She gave her the money, and uh, she wanted out of this life, and she thought this was the way. Somehow she didn't think that Allison would ever get involved, like, in the press, I don't know why she like involved her in the first place. If it was just a, she could have just gave Mark the money directly, right? If she wasn't afraid of being caught and throwing Allison under the bus, I don't know what the other motive was. But the episode ends and everyone is shocked. And uh, I think the girls get some like minor time each of them, and we move on with our lives. <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! I'm. I mean, I already know because. We started this last week, but and you mentioned this ahead of time, but I think it's going to be no surprise to any of our listeners who lived through the 90s uh, what this case is based on. Correct, yes. Well, so this case, actually, I didn't mention this when we started last week recording this, but it's actually based on two different cases, mm-hmm. uh, one of which I hadn't ever really heard before, but the other, of course, is the one that uh, we talked about, but... Um, this case was partially inspired by two different stories. The first one is the stabbing of Monica Seles, S-E-L-E-S. Yeah, Monica Um, Seles. She was a tennis player, right? Exactly, yes. Mm. And I started, I was like, oh, I don't know that one, so I'll research that case instead. But there was far less to, like, go off of, so I decided ultimately to go with the one that there was a lot of material for research. Yeah, yeah. And that is... The story of the assault of Nancy Kerrigan. Wow. I mean, all you do is switch ankle for wrist, tennis for skates, and we're we're off. Well, and actually it was knee. Oh, yeah, thank uh, you. You know, (laughs) no baloney injury in this one. No, definitely not. Um, Okay. Did you, you, you could answer this later, but I remind me to ask you if you've seen the movie I, Tanya. I have not. I actually wanted to watch it in preparation for this recording, mm-hmm. but I ran out of time last week, and then I completely forgot to do it this week. Mm, okay. Uh, you've seen it? I have, yeah. And it's a fictionalized story of Tanya Harding's life, correct? I think so, but I'm going to find out as we we hear a bit more about it, because uh, it, it's my understanding it's supposed to be like based on a true story. With, uh-huh. like, elements for Hollywood, basically, but that it's supposed to be, you know, relatively accurate. Yeah. The untold okay. story. I, I don't know what the reaction was by, like, her family or whatever afterwards, but I'm curious to see how true it was based on what you're about to tell us, so. Do you know do if it. she was involved <laughs> in the movie? I have no idea. I, I think she made a statement after it, and I think it was mostly positive, but I don't I don't remember. Okay. All right. Great. Well, here we go. So, Nancy Kerrigan was born October 13th, 1969, in Stoneham, Massachusetts, to Daniel and Brenda Kerrigan. Nancy's mother, Brenda, 
worked as a homemaker and her dad worked as a welder. And it's interesting, like, later on we'll talk about kind of the relationship between Nancy and Tanya, or at least, like, uh, the media's spin on both of their life and stories because Nancy is kind of like often portrayed as like the privileged one da 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 and Tanya is sort of like the rough and tumble like humble beginnings one mm-hmm. but it's not like Nancy's family was not wealthy like her father apparently worked multiple jobs to pay for her figure skating classes um including driving the Zamboni on the ice rink while she was to kind of like pay for her private lessons Mm-hmm. Um, and she had started taking ice skating classes at six and by eight was taking private lessons. And by nine, by nine, she won the Boston open figure skating competition. So hardworking and also very skilled at skating from a pretty early age. Mm-hmm. She graduated from Stoneham High School in Stoneham, Massachusetts, and went on to attend Emanuel College in Boston, where she studied business, all the while taking, you know, continuing to take figure skating classes. In 1987, Nancy competed in the annual U.S. Figure Skating Championships, uh, which crowned the National United States Champions. Uh, and it, it's referred to as kind of like as the Nationals because it's the National U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this competition in, uh, includes four disciplines, men's and women's singles, pair skating, ice dancing, and each of those has a junior and a senior level. And this is the competition that is one of the major factors in determining the team for the world championships, as well as the uh, Winter Olympics. So Nancy gained national attention when she placed fourth at the junior level in 1987. Uh, And she was noted for her athleticism and her high jumps, but she was considered weak in uh, what's called compulsory figures. Uh, which is something that I had never heard of before, but compulsory figures, apparently in ice skating competition, like not only is it like the jumps and whatever that you're judged on, but also ice skaters used to be evaluated on the, um, like the trail of the marks that their skates left on the ice. Like the patterns that they left on the ice with their skates actually mattered and were part of the things that they were evaluated on. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, and probably the reason neither of us knew that is that was only something that was evaluated until 1988. Uh, So she was kind of like held back by that at first, but then in 1988 they eliminated the compulsory figures as part of the evaluation of skaters' performance. And so when she competed the next year, she was 19 years old and competing in the senior level and placed 12th, but kind of each subsequent year continued to move up in the rankings. Uh And in 1989, she placed 5th, and 1990, she placed 4th. Uh, and so, oh, sorry, and the compulsory figures were removed in 1990. So that's when she kind of like shot all the way up to fourth. Gotcha. So in 1991, she placed third at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, qualifying her for the 91 World Figure Skating Championships, where she placed third and received the bronze medal. 
And that year at the World Figure Skating Championships, the United States won all three medals on the women's podium. Uh, Her teammates, Christy Yamaguchi, won gold, and Tanya Harding won silver. Wow. Uh, So uh, they were kind of like the the trio at the time. And it's interesting. I don't know if it's just because it was my childhood but uh, and probably because of this case, but I feel like figure skating was a sport that, uh, like... there seems in my in my mind there was like a golden era of figure skating and it was kind of like the mid early to mid 90s and i don't know if that's accurate or not but i just feel like everybody for a while knew the names of like the top figure skaters yeah that's actually true i feel like it's definitely continued um not personally for me i'm just not clued in and yeah i think it's different when the olympics air on like tv versus in a streaming environment it, there's just right. something different about watching the olympics for me it's not how it used to be where i would watch the winter olympics every year even though i do not care about sports yeah same um especially for the ice skating yeah, i wonder same. if this time was the time when olympics figure skate or maybe because the olympics are otherwise figure skaters just started to become household names and become looked at as the athletes that they truly are. I think this must have yeah. been a golden age in terms of like that coming to the mainstream. I feel like it has to be because I agree. Yeah. Like these names I know it, to, for the rest of my life, if you ask me any of those names, I'll know them. If you ask oh, me about sure. a current or previous figure skater, I'd be hard pressed. Yeah. I mean, I know like, uh, you know, uh, Brian Boitano and uh, what's the name? Uh, the, 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 uh, Johnny oh Weir. God, he's a Johnny Weir. Thank mm-hmm. you. I guess. So I do know some, I know Brian Boitano is not an example, but Johnny Weir, I guess is a newer sort of name in, ish in figure yeah. skating. So Tara Lipinski. Maybe, Tara Lipinski. Sure. Yeah. That was, that was that time too, though. I feel like so. Yeah. yeah I don't know what, what made it happen, but I love figure skating. So I, uh, I was all about it. Yeah. Yeah. The following season at the national championship, Nancy placed second and then competed in the 1992 Winter Olympics, uh, where she earned the bronze medal and Christy Yamaguchi took gold. Um, And the following year, Christy Yamaguchi retired from competition. And so Kerrigan was kind of like poised to be like the new leading figure in women's skating. Mm -hmm. Um, But she suffered a few bad performances, which... She attributed in part to the corporate sponsorship work that she started to receive because she was, you know, placing like first, second, third at these national and world competitions. And so she started to get corporate sponsorships and she felt like it had kind of detracted from her attention to the actual sport. Mm -hmm. And so she decided to like refocus her work on like skating preparation and preparing for wanting to compete in the Winter Olympics. And she apparently suffered from performance anxiety as well. So she hired a sports psychologist to kind of like help deal with that anxiety Mm -hmm. and really dedicated herself to competing uh, for the 1994 Winter Olympic spots. Wow. So mature decision-making for someone so young. Yeah, for sure. So leading up to the 1994 national competition, which is what qualifies you for the world, which is what qualifies you for the Olympics. 
So her main kind of competitor in the U.S. figure skating championships was Tanya Harding. And it seemed pretty likely that the two of them would be chosen to represent the United States at the 94 Winter Olympics and that they would compete against each other for Olympic medals. Mm -hmm. So even as early as at this point, Tanya Harding was really portrayed by the media as sort of this like gritty woman of humble means. She was like always the underdog. Uh, An article that was published on January 6th of 94 described her as, quote, a truck stop waitress among princesses. Mm. And quote, a can of Budweiser on a shelf of Dom Perignon, which is not complimentary, and and I don't think we need to make those kinds of comparisons. No, and Um, I feel like that's all it was about. All it was, yes. Ever since the two of them were becoming successful, it was about how can we pit them against each other and compare one to the other, and, you know, one was America's darling, and the other one was like the, you know... The junkyard dog kind of exactly. like attitude. It was terrible. Yep. Yep. And Harding was, you know, the underdog storyline did fit her really accurately. Like she did come from a place of financial hardship. Her family, she would talk about her family being abusive. Um, her mother particularly. Uh, she overcame asthma to, you know, which is impressive for somebody who's like an athletic competitor to get to the level she did and be uh, you know, somebody with asthma is, is a challenge. Um, and her father, as when she was a child, was often unemployed. Uh, her mother, as I said, Tanya would say she was abusive, but others would say that Tanya exaggerated those claims. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does ha- seem to have experienced domestic violence uh, from the articles that I read at the hands of her mother, as well as uh, her future husband, Jeff Galuli. Um, as well as she would talk about how she was sexually assaulted by an acquaintance. Um, so she definitely had some pretty terrible experiences with domestic violence and sexual assault. Uh, and, and also she seems to have been no stranger to causing some physical altercations herself. Uh, in 1992, She was involved in an altercation with a motorist by the side of the highway who she threatened with a baseball bat when police arrived at the scene. Uh, In 1985, she punched another skater in the stomach. Uh, She and Jeff Galuli, uh, as I said, he, she talks about how he was abusive towards her. And at one point the police arrived because she had discharged a gun during an argument with him. Mm. So kind of a, a, a turbulent life, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, she also was noted for her, her athleticism. A lot of the articles that I read talk about how, like, she skates like a man. You know, <sighs> there was a lot of comparison between her and Kerrigan. Uh, they often, like, complimented Nancy Kerrigan for her looks, always to, uh, you know, the detriment of Tanya Harding. Yeah. Uh, they described Kerrigan as the Fred Astaire of women skating and Harding as the Charles Barkley. So, and, and how old were they at this time, these girls? Like 19, 20. <sighs> Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. When you're at a time in your life when you're already, because of the pressures of the world, so hard on yourself right. for these types of things, and then you have to be on the public eye, and then right. it becomes like the focus Exactly. Like strangers you don't know are are saying really terrible things about you everywhere you go. 
you know? Right. Yeah. It's terrible. So on January 6th of 1994, Nancy, as I said, was preparing to compete in the U.S. uh, National Figure Skating Championships, which were being held in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, And the Winter Olympics were scheduled to be held in February. It's so interesting to me as I was reading this, how short of a timeline that is. Like, you compete in the Nationals and then the World and then the Olympics, and all of that is within the span of like two months. Yeesh. Yeah. Yeah. So she was practicing at the Kobo Arena in Detroit, and after her practice session, she was in a a corridor speaking with a journalist who was talking to her about the competition when an assailant came up and bludgeoned her in the right knee with a police baton. Uh, The strike hit her just above her knee. Um, And in an unfortunate coincidence, the assailant had actually stopped to speak with Kerrigan's coach and asked him, like, is that Nancy Kerrigan? And her coach said, yeah, that's her, and was, like, in the middle of a conversation talking to somebody else. And he mm. says, like, the next thing he knew, he heard Nancy screaming. Oh, uh, that's terrible. Yeah. So witnesses described the assailant as a tall, heavy-set, clean-shaved white man in a leather coat. Uh, slightly more detailed than some guy. Some guy. <laughs> Uh, and he apparently, like, took a two-handed swing at her with the police baton, uh, but witnesses at the time couldn't agree on what the weapon was. They described, some said it was a crowbar, some said tire iron, some said billy club, mm-hmm. um, but regardless, he attacked her, and then he escaped the arena by smashing through a plexiglass door and disappearing into a crowd of hundreds of people who were attending the International Auto Show, which was being held just outside the arena. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've all likely seen the footage immediately following the attack on Nancy, where she's clutching her knee, crying, why, why, why? Mm-hmm. Um, her father, Daniel, carried her away to get medical attention, and she was treated at Detroit's Hutzel Hospital by Dr. Stephen Plomeritis. Um, And he examined Kerrigan and said there was no fracture and said to journalists or reporters, uh, quote, there is a chance she'll participate. There's also a chance the discomfort could preclude her from participating at her capacity. He was clearly trying to debilitate her. Mm. So Nancy had been struck in the right leg, which is her dominant leg. It's the one that she landed on when she was landing jumps. And so it seemed pretty likely that it would prevent her from competing in the Nationals uh, because she suffered a severely bruised knee, which caused swelling on her quadriceps uh, tendon. And if the injury had been one inch lower, it would have likely fractured her knee, which would have made her unable to even walk. Wow. Yeah. However, regardless, the injury did force her to withdraw from the national championships, and officials initially stated that it seemed likely that it would prevent her from uh, being selected for the Olympic team that year. The next day when Nancy spoke with reporters, she said, quote, I'm okay. It could have been a lot worse. If I can't skate, I'll deal with it. I haven't lost all faith in people. That was just one bad guy. Hmm. Oh. Uh, yeah. So her assault and withdrawal from the competition pretty much catapulted Tanya Harding to the top spot, essentially guaranteeing her a spot in the Winter Olympics, 
where her odds of winning an Olympic medal seemed much more likely with her competitor, Nancy, uh, being at risk of unable being unable to compete. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Figure Skating Association president, Claire Ferguson, told journalists that though it wouldn't be expected, Nancy could potentially still be selected for the Olympic team, even though she was unable to compete at the nationals. And there was a lot, if you look at the newspaper um, articles at this time, which I did, uh, (laughs) a lot of them are like, Nancy should be allowed to compete, like, you know, regardless of whatever rule. And like, there was so much public opinion about this case, um, particularly as we will come to know uh, Tanya's involvement in it. Uh, So many, so, so, so many opinion pieces of like, what should be allowed to happen or what shouldn't be allowed to happen. And a lot of people really wanted Nancy to still be uh, considered for the Olympic team, even though she had not been able to compete at the nationals. Right. Um, Because there was a, like a clause in the like figure skating rules that uh, you could select somebody for the Olympic team, even if they hadn't competed at the national uh, competition. Um, but it seemed kind of like an un- unusual circumstance. Like that didn't happen often. Yeah, yeah. So um, Harding was, of course, interviewed by journalists about the attack on Nancy. And she said, I feel really bad for what happened and a little fortunate it wasn't me. Okay. Mm. Two days after the attack, police investigators informed journalists that a videotape taken by ABC TV camera operators seconds before the attack on Kerrigan clearly showed the face of her assailant. Uh, Because like I said, Nancy was speaking with a journalist at the time. There was journalists there who were kind of like covering the uh, trials up to the nationals because it was leading into Olympic season. And uh, a camera operator managed to kind of catch the face of the person who attacked her just behind her. Mm. Um, And they told journalists that they were sending it to the FBI to uh, enhance the footage so that they could get a clearer picture of her assailant. Mm. The Detroit Free Press reported that police had said that they're investigating whether Harding was involved in the attack. And Harding told reporters that she had been contacted by the FBI. Um, So pretty quickly in, you know, this person, it was obvious that this person attacked Nancy, injuring her knee to prevent her from competing. So pretty quickly they started looking at Nancy's competitors to see, like, was this somebody, was this random or was somebody motivated to uh, facilitate this attack? Mm Mm-hmm. And so Harding, having been, like, her closest competitor, was uh, pretty much immediately somebody who they they looked at. Right. Um, and Harding's husband, Jeff Galuli, was also questioned by the FBI, but told reporters of this uh, conversation that, quote, I wouldn't do that. I have more faith in my wife than to bump off her competition. Prior to the assault, Harding told reporters that she had also received a death threat And so she had, leading up to the Nationals, uh, hired a man named Sean Eckert as a kind of personal bodyguard. Sean was a friend of Harding's husband, Jeff Galuli, at the time. He was also questioned by investigators, but he told journalists, quote, I would never get involved in anything like that. That would jeopardize my future, my career. 
I mean, that's not something I could do or allow. Okay, now here's where there was sort of a a weird moment in this entire story, which is the next sort of like big thing is that a newspaper or a newspaper published an article talking about a minister in Portland who claims that he had heard an audio recording of men conspiring to hire a hitman to attack Nancy Kerrigan. But then several of the other articles mentioned that this supposed minister didn't actually exist. But there was suddenly this, like, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, wildfire of, like, Portland minister hears about this conspiracy, blah, 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 in that was just kind of, like, picked up and circulated by a whole bunch of different news sources. Mm. But I, I just thought it was worth mentioning that there were several that said, like, nobody could find who this man was initially. Yeah. So just wanted to mention that as kind of like a weird uh, detail moment in this story. Yeah. yeah. So um, the FBI continued to investigate. And on January 13th, Harding's bodyguard, Sean Eckert, confessed to having participated in the plot to assault Nancy Kerrigan. Katie Couric and Tom Brokaw reported that unidentified sources said that the weapon used to beat Kerrigan had been recovered in Detroit Uh, from a trash bin behind the ice rink following Nancy Kerrigan's attack. And Eckert told investigators that Galuli, from whom Harding was divorced at the time, or or separated, uh, but had since reconciled with, asked him to arrange the January 6th attack. At the time, there was no indication that Harding was involved in the conspiracy, but uh, Eckhart, Galuli, and an intermediary in Phoenix named Derek Brian Smith, as well as a Portland man who carried out the assault, were all involved in this conspiracy. So the the uh, news started to pick up that in addition to Galuli and Eckhart, there were two other men involved in the assault on Nancy Kerrigan. So Sean Eckhart, the bodyguard, and uh, Derek Brian Smith, the sort of intermediary in Phoenix, were arrested and uh, potential arrests for Tonya Harding, Jeff Galuli, and the, at this point, unnamed attacker were kind of, like, pending. And police stated on January 15th that Harding was under active criminal investigation. At this point, so we're in mid-January, which is uh, about 10 days after the initial attack, so the investigation proceeded really quickly, Um Nancy was asked how she felt about potentially being on the Olympic team with Tanya Harding, because at this point, uh, the the, uh, Figure Skating Association had said that Nancy was likely to be selected and that Tanya had, you know, competed well and so also was likely to be uh, selected for the team. And she wouldn't be excluded solely because she was being investigated. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were like, it's it's possible that both of them could end up on the 94 Olympic team. And so journalists asked her how she felt about that. And Kerrigan's response was, I have nothing to say to her. Mm-hmm. On the 17th of January, Harding's lawyer issued a statement that said, quote, Tanya Harding categorically denies all accusations and media speculation that she was involved in any way with the Kerrigan assault. And that same day, she appeared on Good Morning America, stating, quote, it's an obstacle to get over, and I may not be the normal figure skater image that everyone wants me to be. I'm my own person, and I may be a little rough around the edges sometime, but overall, I think I'm a good person. 
On January 19th, Tanya Harding's ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, was charged with conspiring the attack on Kerrigan and surrendered to the FBI office in Portland shortly after his arrest warrant was issued. Both he and Harding were questioned for more than 10 and a half hours by the FBI. Eight hours into the investigation, or sorry, into the questioning, Harding announced that she intended to separate from Jeff Galuli again, because remember they had separated and reconciled, and now she was saying that they were going to separate again. And she said, quote, uh, or rather the statement said, quote, after a lot of agonizing thought and evaluation, I have decided that it would be be best for Jeff and me to separate. The events of the last few days have been difficult for the both of us. I am innocent, and I continue to believe that Jeff is innocent of any wrongdoing. I wish him nothing but the best, but I believe during this crucial time of preparation for the Olympics that I must concentrate my attention on my training. Hmm. Meanwhile, uh, police arrested the actual assailant of Nancy Kerrigan, the man who hit her with the uh, police baton, whose name was uh, Shane Minowaka, uh, stant in Phoenix, Arizona. The New York Times reported that figure skating officials would vote the following week on whether or not to allow Tanya to remain on the American Olympic team. On January 25th, reports began to circulate that police had enough evidence to arrest Tanya Harding for conspiring in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. On February 1st, the Seattle Times published sections of the transcripts of Harding's FBI questioning. Uh, Remember the ten and a half hour (laughs) questioning. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, In the transcript, the FBI agent states that he knows that Tanya Harding is lying to him about her involvement and is trying to cover it up. And toward the end of the transcript, she states that she knows now that Jeff is involved and said that she is, quote, telling on somebody that I really care about. On February 1st, Jeff Galuli's attorneys reach a plea deal uh, if he provided information on all parties involved in the attack. He was later sentenced to two years in prison and publicly apologized to Kerrigan, uh, though he said, any apology from me rings hollow. Both Galuli and Eckert pled guilty to racketeering, while Stand and Smith pled guilty to conspiracy and second-degree assault. On February 5th, which is still less than a month after the assault, the United States Figure Skating Association stated that there was reasonable evidence to believe that Harding had violated the Code of Ethics, and she was charged with making false statements about her knowledge of an assault on a competitor. During all of this controversy, uh, Harding was allowed to remain a member of the Olympic team and to compete in the 1994 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer. Kerrigan, though it was feared she was unable to, would be unable to compete, was able to recover in time to be in the 1994 Olympics. And the assault and the allegations around Harding, because everything is still sort of like pending on Tanya Harding right now Mm -hmm. uh, during the Olympics, turned it into a complete media circus. Um, At a practice event for the Olympics, more than 400 journalists attended to document the session in which both uh, Harding and Kerrigan would compete. And it was noted by journalists that Nancy Kerrigan wore the same practice costume she had worn when she was attacked, which she said was a deliberate delib- uh, deliberate decision saying, quote, humor is good, it's empowering. Uh, so she kind of wore it as like a fuck you to, Nancy, uh, to Tanya Harding and the people who assaulted her. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
In the actual competition, as you might remember, Harding suffered a broken skate lace, uh, which, uh, you know, you can probably, you probably remember like the footage of her like crying and, and mm-hmm. trying to get it uh, a reskate, which she was ultimately given a reskate by the judges. Mm-hmm. Um, however, she underperformed and finished in eighth place. Oksana Bayul got the gold that year, and Nancy Kerrigan got the silver. Oh, Oksana Bayul. I forgot about her. I know, right? Another name that I was like, oh, yeah. So um, despite all of, you know, her potential involvement in this, she ultimately did not benefit from it other than, you know, being on the Olympic team. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on March 16th, Tanya Harding pled guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution and negotiated a plea deal that she would uh, suffer no further prosecution for any involvement in the assault on uh, Nancy Kerrigan. The plea deal stated that Harding knew of the assault plot after the fact and developed a cover story with Galuli and Eckert and that she had witnessed phone calls uh, to confirm the cover story with other accomplices and that she had lied to the FBI during the investigation. Hmm. She was sentenced to three years of probation, $100,000 in fines, and 500 hours of community service. Her plea conditions required her to resign from the United States Figure Skating, Figure Skating Association. And in June of 1994, the U.S. Figure Skating Association Disciplinary Committee vacated her U.S. championship title. Though she maintains that uh, the, she maintains her story that she knew nothing of the assault until it happened, uh, but Kerrigan has stated that she does not believe her. Kerrigan stated that she had read the FBI transcripts and said, quote, Tanya knew more than she's willing to admit. In her 2008 biography, uh, Tanya Harding claims that she had wanted to contact the FBI sooner to inform them of what she had learned, but that uh, she was prevented from doing so because Jeff Galuli, her ex, but t- at the time reconciled husband, mm-hmm. um, had held her at gunpoint and that two men she did not know gang raped her and that they had intimidated her into uh, not cooperating with the FBI. Jeff Galuli denied these claims. So to kind of wrap up the story, uh, going back to Nancy Kerrigan, Nancy Kerrigan, uh, after competing in the Olympics and winning the silver, uh, she continued to do philanthropic work. Uh, Her mother, uh, Brenda, is legally blind. uh, And so Nancy created the Nancy Kerrigan Foundation, uh, which aims to raise awareness for the visually impaired. Mm Mm-hmm. She retired from skating in 1994, and in 95, she married her agent, Jerry Solomon, and together the three of them had, or together the two of them had three children, Matthew, Brian, and Nicole, born in 96, 2006, and 2008, respectively. Hmm. And she says, uh, this is just kind of the quote I wanted to wrap up on, whatever apology Tanya has given, I accept it. It's time for all of us. I've wished Tanya well. She has her own family. I have my family. It's time to make that our focus and to move on with our lives. Hmm. And that is the story of the assault on Nancy Kerrigan. Wow. So it's so funny because my recollection of this case was slightly different. Because, yeah. again, at the, for most of this time, I was like 13. Uh, or wait, I guess I was 12 for most of it. Mm-hmm. Um. And I remember 
eventually finding out that Tanya Harding was involved, but I didn't realize that it was ultimately at least what she was kind of convicted of or pled guilty to was conspiracy after the fact. I had always thought that she knew about it beforehand and was involved in the plot as well. And and seems like Kerrigan still believes that to be true, but uh, I had always thought that that was the case. Yeah, so did I. And I think looking back, and even until, I don't know, maybe until I, Tanya came out, which was only, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Was that six or seven years ago? Wasn't it like a year and a half ago? No, it came out, I saw it in the movie theater, I think. Before now I have to pandemic, look it up. For sure. Um, I'm going to say six It came out in 2017, ago. so I guess that was five years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. So probably not until that came out. I was unclear as to whether Tanya Harding was the actual physical attacker or had been accused of having someone do it for her. I was unclear oh. of that up until literally like five or six years ago when I, Tanya, was coming out and it became a sort of a, a public story again. I kind of just always assumed the same as you as well, that she was, you know, convicted or accused and found guilty of knowing about it ahead of time. Huh. Um, watching the movie, I looked it up a little bit. It looks like um, Tanya Harding is very happy with the movie and was, like, flattered um, and thought it made her look better than she was. And I think that... Um, <laughs> Nancy Kerrigan's only statement I found from her was she has not seen it. She's not interested in seeing it. She says that her part in the whole thing was like, I was the victim of this. And that's kind of where it begins and ends for her. And kind of similarly to what you said, it's like we could just move on and she doesn't see a purpose in the appeal of something like that. So, right. I don't know. I, I feel like the movie definitely gives you a lot of backstory and they talk a lot about her relationship with her mom and the men in her life so it definitely gives you context and then it goes very heavily into how she was portrayed by the media like you were saying oh yeah um and how all of that maybe played into it and i think it goes with tanya's story that she didn't know about it until it was too late basically you know she was involved with the people they they talked badly about nancy maybe at times um but there was no plot on her end, at least. So who knows? Right. Yeah. Great movie, though. I highly recommend it. I think it's Margot Robbie who plays her. Oh, really? And I think oh. it's Stocker Channing. Oh, boy. Is it Stocker Channing or Joan Cusack that plays her mother? One or the other. But she I does don't a know. Great job. Great job. Interesting. Anyway. Well. How would you rate the episode? <laughs> right. Um, I should have wrote down my rating earlier because now it's been a couple of weeks. Um, I feel like I enjoyed the episode overall as a, as an entertainment factor. I'm yeah. I'd give it a B. I thought the acting was pretty decent too, especially for having teenagers in it. So yeah, um, I B yeah, plus. I'll give it like a, a B minus B plus. It, it wasn't terrible. Yeah, B minus B plus. Uh, B, B minus, I guess is what I would say. It wasn't mm-hmm. bad, but it wasn't, like, super engaging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how it dealt with the crime. Well, what do you think after knowing the, the gritty details? <sighs> I mean, it ended up being, like, a weird, like, like you said, too many Uno reverse cards of who was involved and whatever, <laughs> that it, it became kind of, like, 
why do we why do I even care at this point you know yeah uh so I feel like it could have just been the competitor or whatever but then it was like oh my life is so sad I just want to give up you know tennis so badly that I I had my friend hire somebody to attack me like what and so I thought that was a, a unnecessary twist so I will give it a C because it wasn't uh patently offensive at any points but it wasn't it was just kind of dumb twists yeah i'm gonna give it a c as well i think they tried their best to to stay close but they had unnecessary twists and uh i just have to say when we become famous for coming out with the true crime version of uno this is officially our copyright oh my god yes (laughs) i'm telling you that would be a good idea yeah true crime uno uh... like a reverse card is a uh conviction overturned or something like Mm. that or an objection Hmm. Objection. <gasps> Interesting. A okay, skip well, could uh, be something else. I'm telling you. <laughs> trademark, uh, no steelies. It's ours now. Yeah, keep an eye on our merch store. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if you like our podcast and you liked this episode, the very best thing you can do for us right now is to rate and review our podcast wherever you are listening to this episode because that is the number one thing that helps other people find our podcast. Very true. Also, most people try a podcast at all because a friend recommended it to them. So, if you're enjoying our show, please recommend it to a friend, enemy, family member, stranger, person at the supermarket. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And we really do love connecting with our listeners. So, send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at rippedheadlines. And don't forget to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. You'll find the link to our Patreon, which has a lot of great perks, and you get to enjoy the feeling of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Mm-hmm. A percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you are also supporting positive change in the world. And if you'd like, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash N and Matt. Thanks for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Goodbye. Bye.